that message, which has just appeared on the computer screen, feels like the start of Matrix, um, is one of the other perceptions that outsiders have of us as Christians, have of the church. And it's one of their strong perceptions of us. If you're visiting today, we have been looking at... um, Oh, that's the wrong slide. We have been looking at unchristian. And we have um, been looking at the different perceptions that outsiders have of us. Um, It's based on the book in the lower left corner, Unchristian. And it's a variety of research studies primarily focused on high schoolers up through 35, uh, the future generation. And the perceptions which these who don't go to church from that generation, which is huge, have of us. We've already looked at several. We've looked at the very concept and why it matters. That was the first sermon. Um, We looked at they see us as only interested in them as numbers of what they can add to the church. So we're proselytizing. Um, A couple weeks ago, we looked at the very difficult subject. We are perceived as hating homosexuals. And we looked at that very difficult subject. And these sermons are online if you'd like to catch up. Today we come to this other one, and that is we're sheltered. And that's how they see us. um, That we are, in a sense, out of touch. And that was that first slide I put up there. Uh, We tend to live in our own world spend our time with each other, we avoid normal people, and in that sense, we are living in sort of a bubble world. Living in a world that, in their perceptions, doesn't even exist. It's not a real world. It's a world we're trying to create. At least, it's certainly not the same world that they live in. Um, These folks in this generation and this age... In the book, they list some quotes as they interviewed people for the study. Here were some of the quotes, and these may be painful to hear as Christians, but please listen. Uh, Outsiders were asked, describe your image of Christianity. Here are four quotes from outsiders. Describe your image of Christianity, the Titanic, a ship about to sink but unaware of its fate. Describe your image of Christianity, a pack of domesticated cats that look like they're thinking deep thoughts, but they're just waiting for their next meal. I found that one very painful. I don't like cats anyway, so. (laughs) Describe your image of Christianity, an ostrich with its head in the sand. Describe your image of Christianity, a hobby that diverts people's attention from life. You begin to get a clue of how they perceive us. Now, a couple other interesting things go with this perception. One is, and this is fascinating, they see us as not in touch with the real spiritual world. Now, that may surprise you at first. Um, when, 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 
several decades ago when I was growing up, those who were on the outside were assumed to be atheists. And they didn't believe in God. If you believed in God, you're in the church. That is no longer the case. Actually, among outsiders of 35 and down, spirituality, belief in a spiritual world, is at an all-time high. Uh, The atheist association in this country are in deep trouble. Because there is almost a universal belief in spirituality. There's something beyond this. But their perception of us is we're not interested in the spiritual world. We're out of touch with that, too. We're interested in our religion, our traditions, maintaining the institution of the church. We're not the people in touch with this divine God, this spiritual world. So they see us even as out of touch in that way. Partially what they see is in the spiritual world, there's mystery there. We don't understand it all. We're humans, and we're talking about something other. But they see us too often as Christians who've reduced Christianity to a system. And we have everything figured out, and we will explain it to you with an outline. And they say, how can that line up with this other spiritual world that is way beyond and is mysterious? And how can it be reduced to a simple outline or bullet points? So I found that very interesting as part of this. The third piece of how they perceive us as sort of sheltered is they no longer see us as thinkers. We've sort of walked off the field. We're simply reporting what we've been told. We go to church, and the guy up front tells us what to think. We don't think for ourselves. We just repeat what he tells us, what we've read, what we hear from a TV evangelist. And we're not involved in the messy issues of life and getting out there in the tough discussions of life of what are we going to do with this, and we're just not participating in that. At a political realm, an economic realm, a moral, a social realm, there's lots of tough discussions going on, and the Christians have withdrawn. So all of that has caused them to see us as sheltered, out of touch. Now there's a huge implication of this that follows after it. If the Christians are that way, then they see faith that way. Why believe? Because faith is just going to take me out of touch. Faith isn't practical for real life. Only 20% of outsiders see faith as having any positive benefit for life. And, And if you pick up the book, there's tons of more statistics I'm not inflicting on you today. Now, This is sort of ironic, because in a sense, we shouldn't be here. We shouldn't be in this situation. As Christians, we have all kinds of assets, all kinds of unique things that position us to be at the center of life. We've just failed to use them, explain them, correctly understand them ourselves. Let me give you three examples. First of all, Jesus. 
we have in Jesus the ideal star to position us at the center of life. Think about Jesus. Where was he at when he lived on earth? He was at the center of life. He was out in the marketplace. He was in the highways and byways. He wasn't spending his time with the righteous in the synagogues. He was out with the sinners, the ordinary folks, the outsiders. And he was mixing it up with them. He was going to banquets with them. He was sitting and talking with them. He wasn't intimidated by them. He was drawn to them. And he talked about real life and real issues and struggles and how to figure stuff out. In the real world, that's what Jesus was all about. But any degree to which we've withdrawn him from that, and he's simply a historical figure who once died on the cross, and in that one act is his significance. And obviously that is extremely significant. But if we don't present him as more than just a Savior who died on a cross, but this living, active mentor, this incredible guy who was out with people in the real world, then we've blown our chance. And we're part of the problem. The second thing that we've failed to do is present Christianity as this dynamic worldview. We, we've just finished this winter going through the Truth Project. But this whole concept of having a view of the world, how it all fits together, whether it's science or history or politics or economics, social structures, our changing world, how does that all fit together? We as Christians actually, from Scripture, have a wonderful explanation and presentation of how God is interested in all of that. And it does matter, and as Christians, we need to be engaged in all of that. But too often, we fail to discuss that, and we fail to explain it. And we've reduced Christianity to some rituals and some traditions and some lifestyle rules. And so, we failed to help people see Christianity as it all is. The third thing we failed to do is follow the history of the church. I'm not talking about just the last 50 years, but the last 2,000 years. Because if you look at the big picture of church history, Christians have always been out engaged in the world. That has been a tradition. There was none of this secular versus sacred. The Christians were in government. They were in politics. They were in science. They were in astronomy. It was Christians leading them in those areas to discover what God had created and to share those discoveries and that truth. Some of the greatest advances in education, government, literature, music, art, medicine, science, social justice, some of those greatest advances have been created by Christians out in the world, making a difference. That's the historical witness of the church. The problem is, for the last, I'm going to say, 50 years, there has grown up in the American church this mentality, if you're really holy, you're going to withdraw and focus your energy in here. You're going to go to seminary and become a minister. And that's what real committed people do. 
not out in the business world, not out in science, not out in economics, but we're going to withdraw. And the result has been the price we're now paying. There's one other cause for this, and please, we're going to get to some good news. Hang with me. I've sort of been talking about the church and, and maybe where we've failed, we've messed up, we've not done what we've needed to do, but this chasm is widening because both are moving. And what I mean by that is, in many ways, the young live in a different world than has been present. In fact, their world is so different from ours, that's part of why they feel we're out of touch. We are living in a different world from them if you're 35 and younger. Let me just give you a little bit, and I just want to go quickly through all the things they present in the book. This, these generations are so engaged in this huge world, and they are constantly consuming media and information. And so they are so aware of this huge world and all of this stuff that is coming at them. And they look at us who may not be engaged in this huge world, and it's part of what creates this chasm. Because they are constantly downloading and searching and finding new things and looking on the internet and hearing the latest blog or tweet, and they're seeing all of this stuff, and it's just this constant barrage of information coming to them. In a sense, they are aware of a much bigger world. And they see that as normal. They wouldn't want it any other way. And they are constantly taking all of this in. With that, they see just how complex and diverse the world is. Whether that is political views or economic views, ways of living, social lifestyle, it's virtually everything. They're seeing all of these different viewpoints, and they're not threatened that it doesn't all fit together. They accept the fact this isn't all going to make sense. This isn't all going to be like this. They, in fact, not only live with that, but they trust, mistrust anyone who makes stuff too simple. And sometimes as Christians, we come across and make it too simple. And they say, whoa, life is way more complicated than that. The other truth, which these young adults are not as eager to talk about because it's painful, is 35 and down are living very challenging lives. In many ways, their world is coming unglued and Christianity doesn't seem to be up to the challenge. And that's part of the reality they're facing. The rate of crime in their schools, in their cities, in their neighborhoods, is, extremely, is significantly higher than what we grew up with. Family structures are changing. And we have an image of family structures, but 35 and down are experiencing a whole different reality. Nationally, one-third of births today are to unwed mothers. One-third. In 1960, only one in 20. If you go into the metropolitan city areas, the birth rate is two of three to unwed mothers. 
family structure is changing. The, uh, the, the obsession our culture has with sex is everywhere. In every area. It's not just about sex. It's in basketball. It's in marketing. It's in everything. Sex is at the center of it. Visually, in discussion, in conversation, in vocabulary. Abuse of drugs and alcohol is at a much higher rate. Profanity has become part of common language. Personal struggles, addictions, weight issues, eating disorders, debt, divorce are at much higher rates for 35 and down. Though they are extremely connected with tweets and uh, Facebook and blogs and websites and everything else, in general, they have few good friends and feel lonely. They struggle with interpersonal skills because so much of their life is impersonal through electronics. Their life is hard enough. Suicide has become the third highest cause of death, 35 and down. So they're moving into a different world, and it's not all good. And we're moving in a different direction. But I want to say to you, the situation is not hopeless. In fact, I believe it's hopeful. It's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to feel guilty. I wish the church weren't this way. I wish I weren't part of the church that's that way. I wish I haven't been a part of living that way. But we're here. The good news is we have a great God who already has answers. The church of Jesus Christ has been and can again be vibrant and alive and at the center of culture. We have a worldview that is stimulating and handles good and bad and has a purpose for all truth. And the truth is, God is at his best when we're struggling. And the degree to which our culture is struggling and doesn't have answers, those are opportunities for God because he does have answers for the struggles of life. There is much in our current culture that is an opportunity for God. But it will change how we're going to respond. I'd like to go through, and I think there's seven things I'd like to suggest. I put them in the notes. The first one is that we engage the world. To do that, we have to stop avoiding the world. There's a quote in here that I want to read of how we have avoided the world. Because as I read it, it was so painfully true, it hurt. Here's what one of the, a 28-year-old said. So many Christians are caught up in the Christian subculture and are completely closed off from the world. We go to church on Wednesdays, Sundays, and sometimes on Saturdays. We attend small group on Tuesday night and serve on the Sunday school advisory board, the finance committee, and the welcoming committee. We go to barbecues with our Christian friends and plan group outings. 
we are closed off from the world. Even if we wanted to reach out to non-Christians, we don't have time and we don't know how. The only, the only way we know how to reach out to, is to invite people to join our Christian social circle. I think a lot of us in this room would admit that's a pretty accurate picture of how we fill our time and how we fill our weeks. Why, why do we do this? I think we need to talk about this for just a second because there's some good motives that prompt us to sort of do that withdrawing. We have a desire to be holy. And so we want to be around those people which are holy, which are good influences on us. The opposite of that coin is we want to avoid temptations and situations that we might struggle with where we know we have weaknesses. And so we're pulling back. There's also fear. Fear of difficult situations out there, difficult conversations. We don't know how to handle them, so that causes us to withdraw. And there's times we feel unwanted. If people find out we're Christian, we're feeling like they just soon I'm not here. And so if we feel that very much, then we're not here. And we sort of fulfill that desire. But if we're going to engage, we need to change our scorecard. Uh, Reggie McNeil has written a whole book about this, Changing the Scorecard of the Church. This is what this is a reference to. This is true of any situation, not just the church. What's important we count, and what we count becomes important. Because it sends a subtle message. We're counting, and if we're counting it, it must be important. If you think about what the church has traditionally counted, everything we've counted has been about in here. How many people are in here? How much money is given in here? How many people were at Sunday school? It's the scorecard's in here. Maybe we need to change the scorecard. How many are involved in a community group this week? How many are out there involved in something? I'm on a softball team for work. Not the church softball team. The work one. Where the language is different. And what they do after the game is different. But I'm on that team. I'm involved in this. How many are involved in some type of community group? What if we recorded on the tear-off every week, please write down the number of spiritual conversations you had this week with outsiders. Not with other church members, you know, well, those Baptists over there do it differently, and we were arguing about that. That's not it. It's spiritual conversations we had this week with those who don't go to church. And next Sunday, they'll be in the bulletin. Andover Christian Church had 152 spiritual conversations last week. Wouldn't that be fascinating? To count that kind of engagement in the world. New friendships with outsiders. How many made an effort to go next door or go to lunch with the guy at work or whatever to start up a friendship with someone we knew to be an outsider? Or ways we've helped outsiders. Went over and helped them fix something, or mow a yard, or cook a meal, because they were sick. You see, changing the scorecard of the church is one of the ways maybe we could get engaged. 
and say, we choose to not want to withdraw. We choose to want to engage. We will do that if, number two, we accept our responsibility. I put in the notes John 17, 18, but what I really want to do, because it's more in the first person, is John 20, 21. Same words. But Jesus says, As the Father has sent me into this world, out of heaven, I am sending you. That is a command of Jesus. Don't withdraw. We're going to see that more clearly in John 17 in a minute. But he says, I, I'm sending you. You need to go. This winter, we looked at the, uh, for six weeks at the whole life of Jonah and how Jonah wanted to withdraw, and God said, no, no. My heart is breaking for Nineveh. I need you to go to Nineveh. That is a horrible place. And that's why I need you to go. And then in 1 Corinthians Paul has this wonderful passage. I've picked out just two verses, 19 and 22. He says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. And then he gives some examples. And then at verse 22, he summarizes it. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. That's our responsibility too, not just Paul's. To listen to what God has said and to do it. To not stay where it's safe. To be sent. The third point is to stop being offended. And I think this is very interesting. Paul is in Athens a very pagan city. He could have easily been offended. If he were a modern-day Christian, I think he might have been. Because a lot of us, if we were in Athens, like Paul was, we know what we would have done. We would have found some other Christians and stayed with them and spent our time with them. And if we couldn't find any others, we would have spent our time reading and sort of away. Paul wasn't that way at all. It's really a fascinating story in Acts 17. I'm not going to read the whole story, but Paul went right out in the middle of it. And Athens was extremely pagan. There was all kinds of religions, all kinds of beliefs of right, wrong. And Paul jumped right into the middle of it. And that's what's so fascinating about Acts 17. Starting with verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens... He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And you can go to the Acropolis today, and there is a base for an idol about every 20 feet. The top of the hill was covered in idols. And there were temples all through the city to all these different gods. It was not a Christian environment. So what did Paul do? He reasoned in the synagogue, and then he was in the marketplace every day, reasoning with anyone who happened to be there in the marketplace, talking about what they believed and what he believed. So some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, they heard him, they couldn't figure out, boy, this guy's really wacko, what's he talking about? 
And so they were sort of puzzled, but then they invited Paul to the Areopagus. And it was a gathering of the thinkers of Athens. And Paul didn't hang back. He went right into the middle of all of these pagan thinkers. And he didn't hesitate. Uh, We read there, he says, Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus. People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. He didn't attack them. He recognized what he was seeing. For as I walked around and looked carefully at all of your objects of worship, all your idols, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. I think that's fascinating. What a statement about Athens. They said, you know, we got all these idols and we're trying to recognize all these gods and we know we might miss one. So we're going to sort of put an empty stand here and say, for the one we've missed and we don't know about yet, when we find out, we'll talk to you about him and put up a statue. Paul saw that and said, that's my doorway. And so he went right into this meeting. He says, you know that empty statue you need? I'm here to tell you about who goes there. I want to proclaim to you, Jesus, God come to earth. Paul wasn't offended by their pagan thinking. He didn't run from it. He went right in and engaged them. And we need to realize that as we mix it up in the world, we're going to hear value systems that aren't ours. And we can't be sitting there dropping our jaw saying, oh my gosh, I can't believe you believe that. We listen. And we take it in. And we look for opportunities like Paul saw in an empty base for an idol that didn't exist yet. It struck me if that frustrates us to see all of these different views and value systems, imagine how God feels every day as he watches it. And listens and shakes his head, but he doesn't stop loving. He still goes. Perhaps the easiest thing we can do is number four is help those who struggle. Open our eyes to those around us, especially outsiders, and look for opportunities to help them. In the most physical way, the the economic way, whatever we might see as a way we can help a life. That was one of the most powerful things about Jesus, is how he cared about people. The fifth one, be prepared. We're going to need to become aware. Way back when I was learning how to preach in homiletics class, uh, a quote was given to us, and I think it was from Spurgeon, who was a famous British preacher of a long time ago. His quote was, every preacher should have a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. Because how can we preach if we're not aware of what life is going on for the people we're preaching to? I think that quote needs to be for all of us as Christians. And I understand, I I, I know why, but you know how a lot of us live. We listen to Christian radio. We read our Christian books. We spend our time with our Christian friends. We, gosh, we don't want to listen to the news. It's all bad. And in all of that, we tend to pull back so that if there is a conversation at work, we're not even sure what they're talking about. 
if there's, there's some issue in front of the legislature, unless it directly involves Christianity, we're not sure what's going on. How can we engage if we're not aware of what's out there? And I understand, and hang with me for one more point or two, because there's danger in that, going too far, we're going to get there. But we've got to go far enough. We have to go far enough so that we can be intelligent and be aware, and that takes preparation. In Daniel, who's a wonderful example of a man of God who got involved in a secular pagan government and made a huge difference. Notice what's said there, Daniel 1, 3, and 4. The king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal families and the nobility. Daniel was one of them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude. For every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified, he was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. Daniel was fully educated in his secular pagan culture, but it was part of what gave him opportunity to become one of the leaders of the government because he had, in a sense, prepared himself. Now, this is the point I referenced. We need to work towards balance. One of the toughest passages we'll look at today, and we're almost done, is what Jesus says in John 17. I won't take the time to read it. It's in the notes. But what Jesus says there in John 17, he's praying to the Father, and he says, Father, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. They're in the world, and they need to stay in the world but help them be not of the world. That's our challenge. Too often our choice has been we're pulling out of the world and we're going to stay with other Christians and wait for God to come back and fix this mess. Jesus couldn't do that himself. He had to leave heaven and come to earth and help. And his call to us in John 17 is I need you to stay there. I need you to stay there in the world. Don't be of the world. We need to have enough contact that we can be salt and light so that we can help, we can make a difference. There's a book years ago, Out of the Salt Shaker. If the salt just stays in the salt shaker, it doesn't do any good. But when we're out there in the world as salt, we can't just become like the world. We need to understand. We need to be able to have a conversation. But if we have the same values, if we live the same, do all the same things, then we're no different. We're not adding any light, adding any salt. And that's the challenge, the balance that Jesus talks about in John 17. It's one of the most important things we have to wrestle with. I think that's part of why we need the church to help us figure out what's that balance look like. And some are going to be better at it than others, and we need some coaching. Where is that balance? Number seven, we need to join the discussion. Be a part of the conversation. Find out what's around us. We're at work, in our circle of friends, in our neighborhood. We need to become a part of the discussion. If we at all are going to be seen as engaged and caring 
and not withdrawn and having anything to add. I want to close with one story. At the end of each chapter, they talk about some people who've actually done this and made a difference. This is the story of Lauren. They found her in doing the book. Lauren lives in Colorado Springs, and she works for a Christian organization. On the telephone last week, she told her story. She's 24, and she just said how the Christian bubble, her friends, her work, her church, were swallowing her. So several nights a week, she now clocks in to sell furniture and candles for a local import retailer. At first, when I told my co-workers about my faith, people didn't know what to make of me. But now I think they trust me. They know I respect them, but often we have some lively discussions. It has been great to expand my thinking, and hopefully I'm pushing their thinking. Many of them come to my house every week for a meal. And the interviewer said, well, what's that all about? Lauren said, well, I love to cook, and everyone at the store knows they're always invited to my house, and a lot of them show up. You must make great food, the interviewer said. She said, well, it's not bad. But then Lauren said, you know the best part? Most of the time, my Buddhist friend from the store comes too, and he gets to hang out with my Christian friend, and I just think that's cool. getting out of the bubble, and engaging with the world around us. It is vitally important if we're going to impact that world with the light of Jesus Christ. We're just going to close with prayer. Thanks for your patience. We've gone long. This is just important stuff we've got to wrestle with if we're going to be the light. Will you stand and I'm going to pray for us, okay? Father, this makes us uncomfortable. And I'm, I'm sorry for that. Um, but I know it matters to you. It was so important to you that Christ left heaven to come to earth and take on the form of a servant. You need us to leave the security of our Christian circles and be salt and light because of how much you care. It's the same lesson Jonah had to learn. Help us learn it. And with your help, your guidance, your love, may we go out and change the scorecard and be salt and light in our world so they never again see us as out of touch. I ask this in your son's name. Amen.